Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Mark Graben. Today we're going to talk about how some of his favorite mistakes led to his biggest successes and opportunities. Mark is a speaker, author, podcaster with a half a million followers on LinkedIn, and he gives some good advice. Mark, welcome. I'm excited to reconnect with you. It's been a long time. What a year, right? Yeah. I think we didn't know what this year was going to be. And here, wait, let me make sure I get the right. Dang it. Now I hit mute. Being a guy who uh, hosts a podcast about mistakes, I am a mistake machine. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you started with that because I was either going to start with that or I was going to ask you how you got into data. So let's talk about your podcast all around your favorite mistakes. That is a very creative idea. I like that. For sure. And I'm glad that, you know, it was great having you as a guest uh, my favorite mistake to share your story. I mean, I mean, the name, it's not like I invented the name. It's a Cheryl Crow song, but I think she was singing about a love mistake. We talk about workplace mistakes and the podcast, but you know, that was the inspiration hearing that song. And I was looking to do a different project and interview people that were from a broader range of uh, professional backgrounds. You know, I've been podcasting since 2006, but like that's very niche and my kind of geeky engineers working in healthcare kind of space. Let's talk a little bit about your geeky working in healthcare kind of thing, because I watched your talk on data and there's so much that you can talk about with that, especially I feel like I was talking to my dad about this today, right? He may have charts at three different locations. Are those three different locations sharing information? Do the patients have the same information that the doctors have, that the caretakers have? Is everybody having the same experience, right? Well, and are we using data to compare different sites and how they're performing? Are we making good decisions using the data or are we making mistakes? I mean, you know, people in in my world, you know, I'm an industrial engineer who worked in manufacturing for 10 years and I ended up in healthcare the last 15 years as a consultant. And people talk all the time, like they worship at this altar of what they call data-driven decision-making. But it's possible to make some really dumb decisions using data. And so we have to be careful about that, whether we're looking at the data related to one patient's health or looking at you know, kind of organizations and who's performing well and who's not performing well. Has their performance changed? Sometimes the rules of thumb that people use aren't really statistically valid. How can we be leveraging data better? So, I mean, there's one level as an engineer, I guess my mind tends to say things like, well, I think we're improving. All right, we'll back that up with data. Sometimes people I work with in healthcare, even though they have scientific backgrounds, they might use the phrase, I feel like we're getting better as a team or as an organization. Well, again, you know, show me data. There's this colorful quote that's attributed to different people in you know, the quality improvement profession, you know, uh, in God, we trust all others bring data, but then what do we do with that data? And, you know, sometimes we look at just two data points and say, well, okay, performance is better. And we, we celebrate, 
And then we look at the next data point, the next day, the next week, the next month, the performance has gotten worse and then we get upset, right? So there's people, I pick up colorful phrases from other people, whether it's Cheryl Crow or the people I work with, like there's this dynamic in healthcare environments, they'll talk about, you know, we go from pizza to punch. Performance got better, we throw a pizza party. And then if performance dips worse, like people feel punished. And some of that's just nonsense. Some of that's just a waste of time. So you know, I've been fortunate. I've learned some statistical methods that help us make better decisions with data. And I, I try to make that accessible for people and, and teach people these methods. I hope that 15 minute video of me talking about data didn't just put you to sleep. No, I was actually really impressed by it. And I thought it was cool too. I had no idea that you had collaborated with, is his name Eric Reese? Eric Reese, yeah. He's that the wrote author, the Lean uh, Startup. That was a very yeah. popular book. And the fact that he endorsed your book and you recently interviewed Daniel Pink and he also endorsed your book. Wow, that's so exciting. I was excited by all of that because I really admire them and in their work. Um, you know, Having the opportunity to come speak at Eric's conference was exciting because I've learned a lot from him that I've applied in different ways. But the one person that the quote, in God we trust all others bring data, is often attributed to W. Edwards Deming, who lived from 1900 to 1993, but is still really admired as, as one of these gurus of the quality movement post-World War II. And Eric Reese is a fan of Dr. Deming's work and was an influence on Eric and likewise with me. And, and so sometimes we have these connections. I had a chance to meet Dan Pink when he was doing a book signing for his book, Drive. And we have a connection in that we both went to Northwestern University. I don't know if, you know, he's just being a little bit of it is he's being kind as a fellow alum, but I'll take it. It's great when somebody that you admire is, is willing to say something good about your work, because that, that could have been a mistake, right? You ask for an, an endorsement and either they, they brush you off or they say, no, this book is terrible. Like, I'm glad I took those risks. Also, I noticed in your interview that you drank your cup that says my favorite mistake. I was like, that's awesome branding. <laughs> well, you've got your branding on screen and I see your dad. You're doing well that way too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm curious how you got into loving data. I mean, in a way, if I on some level haven't had a statistical problem, I would call my dad. <laughs> because my dad is an electrical engineer with a master's degree in statistics. And some of these things that I got introduced to, like Dr. Deming and his work, there's another book um, I think I referenced in that talk was online, a book called Understanding Variation, written by a PhD statistician who's still with us named Don Wheeler. And you know, I think people like Deming and Wheeler kind of explain these concepts in a way that help us understand. It's not just about crunching the numbers for the sake of, of doing the math or impressing people with complicated math. It's not complicated math like some statistics might be. It's about equipping people to make better decisions. And then for the business, if we're making better decisions, we're going to be more successful. And those decisions could include things around like, you know, who are we promoting because of good performance? Was their performance, to use the statistical phrase, was that performance really better in a statistically significant way? Or were they just kind of, was it a game of chance and they were above average? And then we promote them and then suddenly they seem like a below average performer. Like there's this idea of regressing to the mean. You hear about it in sports. Some team played really well for a couple of weeks and then, oh, they regressed to the mean. And when we overreact to short-term moves and performance, 
whether that's looking at sports or in the workplace or looking at our weight on the scale. I think I have this passion because again, it's not just about the math, it's about making better decisions and trying to be more successful. Has your dad shared in your love of data and has he given you ideas that have stayed with you? Well, I mean, he has. So one thing I'm fortunate for is that he had those books on his bookshelf by Dr. Deming and by Dr. Wheeler. And being a curious, nerdy kid who grew up in a household that really encouraged learning and education and studying and making sure I had good opportunities, that's been incredibly helpful. And, and I'm thankful for that. Not just my dad, but my mom. You know, my dad, when I was graduating kindergarten, just a real quick aside, you know, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. My dad was working for GM and he got transferred up to Michigan. And they very intentionally bought a home in a suburb of Detroit, Livonia, the town of about 100,000 people. And even like known nationally at the time, and I, I hope this is still the case, Livonia Public Schools was probably one of the top public school districts, if not in the Detroit area, in the country. And, and so they moved there. There were really good opportunities for me from a young age. Wow. And what was his engineering experience like? Well, things have changed. There's this generational difference. I mean, he went to college. He was the first in his family uh, to go to college. And he had an opportunity to go to a school in Flint, Michigan. At the time, it was called the General Motors Institute. It was a, a four-year engineering college, maybe master's programs. or but, but anyway, it was a university that was owned and run by General Motors. And so he went to this school and he was able to do this, you know, basically school was paid for by General Motors and he would alternate between work and school, you know, in a co-op program. And so he graduated from that program and worked, he worked at General Motors for 40 years. He had a couple, he had lots of different jobs in that time. I was coming out of college. I took a job at General Motors, stayed two years, and like I was changing jobs every two years or 18 months. I, I don't know. It was just a different career path. This expectation of you find a good company and you stay with them for 40 years versus jumping to different companies, different industries, big companies, startups. I've been fortunate in different ways. I've been able to take some risks and, and do some different things. So I think there's times when, uh, well, I know my dad didn't understand that because it's just, it's a different day and age. So GM university sounds pretty elite. In 1968, maybe that was the case. No, I mean, so like, you know, they General Motors sold the university and it was no longer exclusively this pipeline for GM employees. It's actually called Kettering University today, named after, you know, an old time GM engineer. So I was in, I had the opportunity to do the summer science camp program. Um, I think it was after eighth grade and after ninth grade to go spend three weeks on campus at Northwestern. And so, you know, it's like, oh, well, go do your summer nerd camp thing and have a little time from home. And I loved it, but I fell in love with the campus and, and with Chicago and Northwestern being, you know, about four hours from home. I wanted to get a little further away from home than Flint or Ann Arbor. My parents made, you know, sacrifices and, and said, well, if you want, they could have easily said, look, you know, uh, you, you can get a great education at the University of Michigan and it won't cost as much. Why don't you do that? But they let me pursue things at Northwestern. And I think that opened up other doors for me and they're happy about that and proud of that. And I'm thankful. I know that still exists and it is a beautiful campus right in my backyard. <laughs> so maybe I need yeah. to be checking that out for my kids. <laughs> maybe. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, that when we talk about favorite mistakes, I don't think I ever thought that that was a mistake. It was just more, that was more of a favorite choice. That's really cool. I actually was curious. I know that when we connected, you and I kind of brainstormed which favorite mistake I was going to share. Mm-hmm. I would love to know the favorite mistakes that weren't shared. That's a good question. There was nothing that I had to turn down because it was you know too scandalous or, uh, or anything. Most of the guests come on the show, or at least half of them, and the, the first thing they'll say when I ask them, what's your favorite mistake is, oh, it was so hard to choose one. Which one was the favorite or a favorite? Because it's not my biggest mistake or my soul crushing mistake or, you know, the mistake I couldn't recover from, you know, it's meant to be a, a way, you know, for people to talk about mistakes, like one that was told that I think was a surprise or it was a, a fun or a unique story. Uh, Ron McGill, who's a zoologist in, in Miami at Zoo Miami, told the story of how he was a young zoologist and he almost got his hand torn off by a crocodile. And so that's one thing I've loved about the podcast is getting to interview people from different backgrounds. And what made it a favorite mistake for Ron McGill was that he met his wife, who was one of the nurses who was treating him at the hospital. And they've been married 40 some years, I think. So sometimes really people really surprise me. I mean, they're because because I, I try not I, I make sure I don't hear the stories in advance. And then there was ones like Ron, Ron McGill's story was sweet, even though it involves like this bad crocodile injury. He didn't lose his hand, thankfully. But um, I had one guest where she was talking about you know, her, her career and, and being busy. And I thought it was kind of going down this very career-oriented path. And then the story took this turn where she said, and then my husband dropped dead on the floor in the other room. So you know, sometimes these what sound like work stories, you know, it was something very personal. And then as an interviewer, I think, oh my God, how do I, 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 well, I end up stammering like that. But the fact that, you know, I appreciated that, that that guest would feel comfortable sharing something so personal. It, it did affect her career in different ways. And there was regret around, you know, the, you know, I think spending so much time with her career and then having that sudden loss of her husband, you know, was something difficult to recover from. So there, there's a range of stories on the podcast for sure. It's interesting to kind of try to draw that out of people. Yeah. Have you had any mistakes lately? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I make I make mistakes all the time. I mean, I, I think maybe I'm more aware of it. Like I, I try to find this balance where recognizing that I've made a mistake becomes an opportunity to say, well, even if it's something small, okay, well, I'm not going to make that mistake again. You know, so it's my engineer mind and my training, you know, from different workplaces of, you know, realizing that mistakes are something to learn from, right? So if we're too hard on ourselves to the point where we, we can't admit a mistake to ourselves or to others, we can't get better. And so, you know, I've, I've made mistakes. I, I, there's a consulting firm that I worked with and we went live. I was managing this project to convert to a new website. So there were all kinds of mistakes that were made in the process as much as you plan and plan and plan. And I try to have this mindset of like, well, the best you can be like, I'm like 95% certain things are good. And if there's any problems, I'll fix them. It's not life or death mistakes I'm making. But, you know, we went live with this new website and, and the founder, one of the founders of the firm who had passed away last year, like he was the former CEO of Alcoa. He was U.S. Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush. 
And we went live with the new website. And at least I caught this before anybody else. I'm like, I didn't move over the page that memorializes him from the old website. And so again, like that was fixable. I'm fortunate to work with people with that consulting firm and, and a software company I work with called Kinexus, where both of the, those, those companies try to have this environment, like there's this phrase, psychological safety. When you have psychological safety to speak up, to suggest ideas for improvement, to point out mistakes, to point out things that could be better. Like when, when, you're, when you feel safe, when you are safe, to bring up things like that, realizing that the first reaction is not going to be ridicule, blame, or punishment, to work with people who will say, okay, well, that was a mistake. Let, let, let's fix it. And then let's understand what happens so we don't repeat that mistake in, in the future. And you know, I try to live by that because you know, I'm, I'm a recovering perfectionist, I think. Maybe that's a side effect of you know, high, high academic achievement and standards at a young age. Like there's this dynamic where kids who grow up doing well at school become perfectionist. I know it's chicken and egg, right? Did I do well at school because I was a perfectionist? I want to hear more about that because you did end up at MIT. I mean, that is Mm -hmm. a very rigorous program. (laughs) And I think that's where the Northwestern opportunity after a couple of years of work, I I, pleasantly surprised, you know, they got, I got into a master's program at MIT that wasn't on my radar, but you know, part of what detour for a second, you know, me, me taking the job at General Motors wasn't ideal. I left after two years, but one of the things that made that a favorite mistake was working with somebody who had graduated from a program at MIT. He was very encouraging. I wouldn't have thought to apply to MIT. Like I figured, like I I got into a, a great college and I didn't think I was dumb, but I didn't think I was MIT. That just wasn't on my radar. And like, I definitely would not have been accepted as an undergrad. So just to make that clear, but as competitive as that was, but boy, this turns into a therapy session. No, I don't think it's that. But as a kid, part of the story of my parents moving to Livonia is that they had a program, it was a gifted and talented program. So like, even when I was in preschool, there had been some testing and I got identified as being in that category. And, you know, so from an early age, I had great opportunities, but I read an article the other day that said there is a very high correlation, again, like chicken and egg, which is it, you know, kids who are in gifted and talented programs, then struggling with perfectionism. And, um, and, and so I think trying to maybe part of why I'm driven to talk about mistakes, whether it's my own or others, is a reminder to people, including myself, we're all human. We're never perfect. Something going wrong doesn't mean we're a failure. Learn from it, move forward, be resilient. That's something I guess I've tried to get better at, not being too hard on myself. And the more you hear that from others, doesn't that help you personally? It does because, you know, I, on, on the podcast, I've had people who are successful in, in so many different domains, you know, athletes, doctors, CEOs, entrepreneurs, like, you know, in episode one, Kevin Harrington, who was one of the original sharks on the show Shark Tank season one, I had an opportunity to interview him. And for my original podcast, which is called Lean Blog Interviews, I couldn't find a way to fit him into that podcast. They're like, do you want to interview Kevin Harrington? He's got a new book coming out. And so that was part of why I started my favorite mistake. And the PR people working, representing Kevin said, yeah, he'd love to come on and talk about a mistake. And he told a story, you know, long story short, you know, he had 10 infomercial products that were running ads and selling uh, to people. And all of the money for all of those sales were flowing through one credit card merchant account 
And one of those 10 products, I don't know which it was, I don't remember if he said, but there were all kinds of quality problems. So there were lots of complaints and returns and chargebacks. And so the credit card company cut off everything. His cash flow for his entire business was shut off because of quality problems with one product. And so he learned from that. And he said, well, you set up a different credit card merchant account for every product. You don't put all your eggs in that basket. But I think, is it humility or strength or both that somebody would tell a story of like, here's how I almost killed my business, but I recovered from it. I learned from it. I moved forward like it I think, you know, the one key takeaway from a hundred plus episodes is if somebody thinks somebody is really successful because they never made mistakes, like that's, that's probably not the case. I think that is a powerful lesson maybe for, for younger people or for entrepreneurs or even, you know, middle-aged guy like myself, who's still trying to figure this out. I also really loved the idea of a mistake leading to something unexpected. That's really cool. I asked my dad right before this if he could give an example of something like that. And he said, maybe I shouldn't have bought discount tickets to Acapulco for honeymoon season during a hurricane. But he's like- (laughs) How did that turn out in a positive? Well, I'm here because of that, you know? So (laughs) So that's interesting too, how a mistake could lead to meeting someone that could get you into MIT or how Mm -hmm. a mistake could lead to a connection that might change your career path. I've had that happen also. Yeah, totally. I made a couple of job decisions, you know, coming out of undergrad and then coming out of grad school where I realized very quickly, like being at those companies was not a perfect fit. It certainly wasn't like, oh, I want to spend 40 years at this company. So, you know, my two years at General Motors, I did learn a lot. I met a lot of great people. It led to that opportunity to go to MIT. I took a job coming out of MIT at Dell Computer in 1999, learned pretty quickly. Like, yeah, I don't think I want to be here 40 years. Got to do some cool work, met some great people. And then I also, I met my wife there and we have our 20th anniversary coming up this month. So my cute version of a, thank you. My attempt at a, you know, a cute answer for what what's my favorite mistake was like, oh, taking that job at Dell. It wasn't really the right fit, but I met my wife and Unlike Ron McGill, you know, I didn't get my hand mangled by a a crocodile or something else at work. How did you meet your wife there? So it's funny. She worked for a big major consulting firm that was part of a huge team that was there uh, to do a project that I was involved in. So I think literally our first ever interaction was her emailing me because it comes back to data. I needed to send her some sort of spreadsheet. And then there was a follow-up meeting. And so the first time we ever met for real and in person was in like this little conference room at a building in Austin, Texas, a Dell computer. And it's funny, I mean, if she was here, she would tell the story of like, I, I, at the moment, I was way more impressed with her initially than she was of me. But thankfully, there were more opportunities to make a better, stronger impression, I guess. That's funny. I was going to make a joke like, did you help her integrate her data? <laughs> So yeah, tell me about how your books evolved. Going back to, to childhood again, let me lay down on the couch for a second. Like I really loved writing. I wanted, I loved baseball. And I, I was a kid, I loved newspapers. Like I read newspapers, I delivered newspapers. A friend of mine, when I was in elementary school, his dad was a sports writer who got to tra- uh, travel with the Detroit Tigers. Vern Plagenhoff was his name. He was the president of the Baseball Writers of America at one point. And I thought my friend Scott's dad had the coolest job. He gets paid to watch baseball and then to write about it. 
and to meet the players and to write about them. And so like coming through high school, I was in a, a special math, science, computer program, but I was also editor of the high school paper. I don't mean for this to sound like obnoxiously horn tooting or anything, but my dad, you know, I think, you know, I don't think he saw the, what the internet was going to do to uh, the newspaper business. But I think he looked and said, well, you've got the math and science aptitude. You can do engineering. You should pursue engineering. You'll, you'll, you make a better living. But then what I learned was I could still find things to write about related to engineering and to business and to healthcare. So I started blogging in 2005 and had built a bit of a following and then had an introduction to a, a publisher who was looking to, for somebody to write a book about this methodology called Lean. Lean manufacturing is what it would have meant when I was at General Motors to write a book about the application of lean, this improvement methodology, this management system, the applications into healthcare. And so I'd been doing that work in healthcare for uh, for about two years and had this introduction. And it was a, a lucky break where a lot of people write a book. And back then you would write a book and then you would try to shop it around to a publisher. Mine was almost in reverse. Like I got introduced to this publisher, like, hey, this guy, Mark can write. He could probably also write a book then. And so I had a contract to then go write the book. And so I wrote a book called Lean Hospitals. I co-authored a, a second book with a, a friend and colleague of mine called Healthcare Kaizen. And Kaizen is a Japanese word that means continuous improvement. How do you create a culture of continuous improvement in healthcare based on lessons that come from Toyota? And so that's why there's some Japanese words involved. And then the most recent book, which is more about the use of data, um, that book's called Measures of Success. You know, things that evolved where I, I, I self-published that. But that was a, a different, um, you know, a different path to, to that book, writing it and, and doing it without a publisher and, and going to market with it. And I'm, I'm glad I did it that way. That wasn't a favorite mistake. It wasn't any sort of mistake, I don't think. Yeah, I'm interested in the differences between going the publisher route and the self-published route. I think one thing is the evolution where I think as self-publishing has become more popular, more common there's less of a stigma around it. Like there used to be this phrase called a vanity press, where if you self-published, you're basically paid somebody to publish it. The stigma or the, the belief is like, oh, well, that book wasn't good enough for a publisher to accept it. So therefore it might be crap or it's probably crap. But as, as technology and, and different things have moved along, like the, the thing I learned with the book Measures of Success is you can hire a company or contractors to do all of the things a publisher would normally do. Editing, cover design, marketing, you know, and, and so self-publishing doesn't necessarily anymore mean unprofessional. You know, you can hire professionals. And, and I think the thing I appreciated about self-publishing is that I partner, I like to partner with people, whether I'm their consultant or whether I'm hiring them to work with me. But I think there is something to be said for the contractors and the professionals that I hired to work with me on this project. They reported to me as the customer. There were times when I was working with a publisher where there, there, there were just so many things that become then out of your control, creative aspects of the book, um, or even setting the price. If you work with a publisher, they'll make an upfront investment in your project. They are taking on some risk, but I know a lot of authors who either ended up saying, well, I hated the title of my book because the publisher said, we think this will sell. I hated the cover design because like you, you lose creative control when you're working through a publisher. Now, somebody like Eric Reese, his book was 
wildly popular. It was on sale in every airport bookstore. Like there, there are certain books where like you know, maybe it does make sense for it to go through a publisher, but um, you know, there's more and more people now publishing their own book, maintaining creative control, maintaining business control of, again, like setting the pricing and things like that. I, I think those are some of the reasons why more people are, they're going the non-publisher route. So you've got to think about, you know, the purpose of what you're doing. Why are you writing a book? How, how does it help support my broader business being a speaker and a trainer and a consultant? There's lots of reasons to write a book. I, I had ideas to share. I thought the book would be helpful to people, but you know, and I want to sell a lot of copies because I want the book to have an impact. I don't really care if I make much money on each individual copy of the book because, you know, like my own personal business model is around things like speaking engagements and consulting engagements. So if that, that book in a way is a calling card where a publisher has to make a certain margin, so they, they want the price to be higher. I want the price to be lower for a number of reasons. Like just to get the book in front of people. And so, yeah, I mean, the, this word vanity, it's interesting that pops up in a couple of different ways, right? I mean, I feel like I'm talking about myself a lot and that seems- I mean, you do have 500,000 followers on LinkedIn, <laughs> which you told me was kind of a bit of a- It's a vanity uh, metric, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that is a bit of a vanity metric, right? But yeah, I mean, there, there's there's this pattern here and this, like, this could be a whole different podcast series of like, you know, instead of my favorite mistake, it could be- dumb opportunities I stumbled into, or it's not that it was a dumb opportunity. It's just, there's gotta be some song that encapsulates this idea of, uh, but you know, there's, there's, there's different phrases. I mean, some people would say better lucky than good, or I think there's a different phrase of luck favors the prepared to take advantage of an opportunity to write a book. I was in a place in life and an opportunity, I could take advantage of an opportunity in a way sometimes people aren't able to do so, but like with the LinkedIn thing, you know, early in their development of what they call their influencers program, this might be almost 10 years ago, that was, you know, an invitation program. And they really focused, they weren't inviting celebrities and world, world leaders to this program. They were inviting book authors. I don't know. I got on somebody's radar and I got invited to that program. So LinkedIn has been very good to me in that when people from healthcare professions and the healthcare industry, hospitals, health systems, sign up for LinkedIn, I would get suggested to them as uh, somebody to follow as a quote unquote influencer. What are your thoughts on paid advertising or paid following? That's a good question. I, this is going to sound bad, but I'm, like, I'm not that kind of influencer. Like I'm not in fashion or travel spaces or things where like a lot of this paid influencer stuff happens maybe. I'm curious, I'm bouncing all over the place here, but your thoughts on the future of telehealth? I'm by no means a telehealth expert, but a couple of perspectives to share on that, just from health systems or talk to people who are involved in telehealth. And what I've heard very repeatedly is that because of the pandemic, telehealth went from a five-year plan to a three-week implementation. Because I think before the pandemic, telehealth would have a lot of benefits to patients, but then for the health care providers, it's complicated. How do you really get fair reimbursement for doing a video visit versus an in-person visit? It was maybe a nice to have someday sort of initiative, but then with the pandemic, nobody wanted to come into the offices and the federal government made some temporary changes to the reimbursement structure that I think hopefully should become permanent to, to provide reimbursement for telehealth 
and, and that might become a more permanent part of our healthcare system. Because the, the other story I'll tell real quick is, you know, I've got middle-aged lower back pain. It happens, right? And I'm trying to figure out how to address that and mitigate that. I'm standing at my desk. That's one of my things that I'm trying to do. So the uh, orthopedic suggested telemedicine physical therapy. And I'm sure you've probably done physical therapy for a knee or something before, right? I just recently had to take my son because he tried to climb a tree and he put his leg higher than his leg could push himself up. And so I've always thought like, you know, physical therapy, it's physical. It has to be in person. Like someone's helping you stretch and showing you exercises, video, like through my phone, through an app, telemedicine, physical therapy was actually way more helpful. I thought it was going to be just sort of, okay, we're going through the motions of this, but what's it really going to do? But there was a trained physical therapist through the video sessions and she's having me pop up my phone and she's demonstrating certain stretches and then watching me do it and give, giving feedback. And then where I felt bad for her, she actually shared because she's at a desk and on her computer way more than she normally did as a physical therapist, that she was now starting to have some aches and pains. Oh man. So that was a mistake for her to sit that way while she's doing her work. That's funny. I would love to know if any of your dad's advice or if any of your parents' advice or sayings has stayed with you. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of it, there's advice. And then I think there's like just setting an example by the way they lived their lives and the way they parented. You know, so there were lessons around education, trying to be a leader, like, you know, volunteering and, and trying to give back in different ways, like, you know, getting involved. You know, they, they were involved in community group, like back in the 80s, the, the JCs. Do you remember ever hearing about that? Right. So I think there was some element of fun and partying, but it was a community benefit group that would that would do good work. And my dad, especially, well, no, both both parents being involved as volunteers with their church. You know, I think they, they just, you know, set an example around being dependable, being reliable. Like, you know, I, I had jobs as a kid. I had a paper route. I, I worked retail in, in high school. And I, it's not that they were making me work or I don't know. I think there, were, there was a work ethic instilled. And so I, I might not remember some of the exact words, but I know like the example and the influence was, was there. Has that played into your marriage, their relationship and how you were brought up? Oh, that, that's an interesting comparison because my wife and I don't have any kids. So there's not that kind of flow through of, are we parenting the way our parents parented us? We don't have that opportunity. You know, I think, you know, my wife had similar, you know, advantages and examples set, but so like one, one commonality is, you know, because I'm, I'm turning four, I'm turning 48. She's two years younger than me. Our dads both worked and our moms were stay at home. Like our moms did not go to college. Now my, my mom did like when I was in middle school, she started, she was a stay at home mom and she started going to community college. She got a teaching degree. She got a master's in education, did work. My parents and my in-laws are both really smart, good, good people. My father-in-law is an electrical engineer. My mother-in-law was working and didn't go to college. And so they made sure though, my wife being an only child, that gender wasn't going to become an issue in terms of choices and expectations and career direction. And, you know, I, we, we say only half jokingly because, you know, my wife has a, a corporate career. She's an executive. My mother-in-law born 
35 years later would be a CEO somewhere. I've, I've said that all, not, not even half jokingly, like I think it's true to look at it as a white guy with a lot of privilege, like to, to hear opportunities that people didn't have, or even now don't quite have. Like there's one of my colleagues, Quick Detour, when she started at a different part of General Motors in, I think maybe 1984, she was the first woman to ever be an engineer in that facility. And then when I started working at General Motors 10 years later in a different factory, the engineering team was half women. So even in you know, a short time, there were changes. But to think back, like 1984 is not that long ago in terms of opportunities that weren't always, women weren't always encouraged to go into. And so my wife has a passion around helping encourage girls to stick with math and science, because it's still a problem today of girls getting discouraged middle school, early high school, and kind of peeling away from advanced math or science tracks due to different social pressures. And so, you know, that, that battle is still ongoing, I think. That's really cool. And I do feel like from what you told me about your books too, that some of that lended its way into your leadership principles. A great way to learn something even more deeply is to write a book about it. Right. So there's this balance of like, I know enough about a topic to feel like I could write a book, but then the process of researching and writing a book and getting feedback from people and digging deeper. And so, well, here, here's part of this. I don't think I'm explaining well, so maybe I don't understand it well. I'm going to go and learn more. Right. So that's one very positive thing that's come out of a book. And then if I understand something better and I've gotten better at articulating it, teaching it to others, I can then practice it better and apply it better to my own work. I think the same thing applies to giving a speech. Like you can have an idea, but when you have to give a presentation on yeah. it, right? Yeah. You work on it and you look at it and, you know, a lot of training and teaching that I do, you know, sometimes you have a, a day long class or a half day class or the typical conference is an hour long talk. Like there was that opportunity at, at Lean Startup Week with Eric Reese. So like, yeah, 15 minutes. That's so much harder to prepare for. Because you've got to be that much crisper and tighter in what you're saying and how you're saying it. Like er earlier today, I interviewed a, a stand-up comedian or like you know amateur stand-up comedian. Like it's it's she has a corporate job, but she's done a lot of stand-up comedy. She talked about uh, you got to have a tight ten minutes, and it was a similar thing. I think you know giving a fifteen-minute presentation. It's, it takes a lot more time to prepare than it does for something longer. Cause you, you, there's, there's no slack. There's no slop. If you meander off track in an hour long talk, you can come back to it, but in a 15 minutes, no, there's, there's no time for that. So it does force you to maybe understand better and articulate it better. How many times did you practice that lean startup speech? <laughs> I practiced that. I don't remember how many times, but I certainly practiced that far more, more than I would practice a longer talk. And, you know, it's just a big challenge. Yeah, the other challenge I was thinking of, you know, previously in startup week, they did a session. Have you ever called, uh, heard what they call Ignite talks? Yeah, I think I have heard of them. You get five minutes, 20 slides, and the slides have to automatically advance every 15 seconds. And so that's probably the one that I actually did the most prep and practice for. Like I had a spreadsheet with timings and for, I didn't want to be so scripted word for word that it felt robotic, but you've got to really plan of like what to say and to stay on track. And if you stop and cough and now those, those slides keep advancing, <laughs> you know, what's your recovery plan? That was, that was a speaking challenge. 
Oh my God. That's amazing. I mean, I'm really curious. I'll end with this, but like what has gotten you to do these things? Like what got you to commit to those things? I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I'm an introvert who likes being on stage. Like I like sharing ideas. Like I was never the kid that wanted to be on stage doing drama or a lot of it is just being driven for whatever reason to want to share ideas or I feel fortunate. I've learned these ideas and I want to share them with others. I think is part of it. Some of it is just, you know, being a solo consultant since 2010, who sometimes partners up with other consulting groups, but it's basically, it's, it's my own business. There's some need to hustle and get some attention, even if the attention at times is uncomfortable. Like even with this interview, I feel like I'm just, I'm talking about myself and I hope you can make something good out of this arena. <laughs> it's been great. But, You're a great speaker. Well, thanks. All right. Well, intro me to your wife. And I want you to go ahead and promote your blog and promote away the next two minutes of yours. Podcast first, you know, My Favorite Mistake podcast is at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. You can find it wherever you're listening to Rena's podcast. You can search My Favorite Mistake podcast. My website is markgraven.com. I have a blog at leanblog.org. And I have other podcasts that, that I do, including one that you can find there. MarkRaven.com will kind of point people to the different projects and things that I do. They can find me on LinkedIn. I spend less time on Twitter because that seems like less of a business tool and more of a, I'm angry about sports or politics place, but people can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty obnoxiously easy to find online. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks, Serena. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. A very interesting interview and a nice little uh, title to his uh, podcast, uh, What's Your Favorite Mistake? But I think really he uses it in the sense is what is your favorite mistake that you really learn from and make yourself a better person and how to progress the future, especially when it comes to your employment or work ethic development. I found it also very interesting that, you know, I was on the debating team for a year with Jeff Chebbett and where we ended up going to the state finals. And really that rebuttal round, a two-minute round, you have to be able to take presentations and be able to shoot them down. You know, we were on the negative team and be able to shoot them down and make constructive criticism and be able to really get your point across in just two or three minutes. And uh, most of the debates were won or lost in that round. It makes you really think fast. You have to learn how to pivot. You have to really learn and understand how to make a sharp reply if you want to win. And isn't that part of the game of life? And look at how when I played on the chess teams and we certainly won our share of championships and had our disappointments and finished second in some leagues as well, that it doesn't take much to get behind the eight ball, but that if you never give up and you're searching and you're playing hard to better yourself and your moves for the future, you're going to uh, end up with much better results. A very interesting story about statistics is that you can increase your odds of winning, whether it's stock trading, whether it's in sports, whether it's in anything that you're really attempting to win at, even just the game of backgammon. You can figure out whether it's backgammon or whether it's poker or blackjack, the best odds of winning. But that doesn't mean necessarily that even though the statistics are in your favor for a favorable outcome, if such and such occurs, that doesn't mean that 99 to one shot also come in and ruin your formula of success. 
but you still have to make sure that you're wagering or you're betting as part of your life where you're not risking or over-risking everything, even though the odds are greatly in your favor to have a positive outcome. You brought up the story about how I, I got swept away in a, in a hurricane laying on a beach when a storm is coming in because they didn't understand the language. And that's why we got such a wonderful deal to go to Mexico and Acapulco uh, for a, a beautiful honeymoon at a bargain rate. But the odds of me surviving what happened to me was 10,000 to one for every one person that survived what happened to me, taken out a mile out to sea, just five minutes, 9,999 people would die and only one survivor. So the odds were certainly way, way, way against me. And it's actually swimming the wrong way is what ended up saving my life. What do you think of them apples? I think you might not want to try that again. No. And yet, if you go at the same period of time during that first week of June, if you went to Acapulco uh, over the last 45 years, there's been a majority of storms that same week. I think the number is up to like 34 out of 45 years, or it's like 32 out of 45 years that you'd have a storm at the same time. So you're talking about the odds are very favorable that you're going to have a storm during that week. So that's why the rates are so beautiful and good, because they can't really fill their hotel if it's hurricane season, especially the beginning of hurricane season in that part of Mexico. And let me tell you something, getting hit by them big waves makes it very, very scary to see how these people in Hawaii, and, and there's a place in Portugal where they do that surfing, and they have these huge, huge, huge waves that some of them can even be 50 or to 100 feet high. It's a matter of, again, where we like to test ourselves. That's why certain people climb certain mountains and go on certain survival stories, because we want to keep testing ourselves. Are these all mistakes or are they challenges to get different perspectives to our lives? In Mark's case, he had an example of stability of his father. And yet he brings up whether they were mistakes, but they were really a journey of learning experiences when he went to work even at General Motors himself or he went to Dell. There was certainly certain connections that happened in his life. that if he didn't do those things, certain other events wouldn't have occurred. He wouldn't have met the girl that he was going to marry. He wouldn't have met a guy to recommend going to MIT. He was fortunate to actually get the connection where somebody was going to pay him to write a book rather than the other way around where you write a book and then you hopefully can try to sell it and have somebody want to publish it. So you're talking about taking advantage of opportunities that go your way. How many times do people get certain opportunities and they don't even realize that got an open window or an open door and you have to go through it and, and do it and be a person of action? This is part of life's journey of getting ahead and progressing. I think Mark also demonstrated that with the kind of podcast that he is showing, it's that he's able to put himself out there, do something that he enjoys, share it with other people, which his parents also set the example of that, where they also were community-oriented people. And when you have those type of examples and you carry on and follow it through, obviously he has some very good relations with his father as well, where those type of relationships help develop a legacy of the future of your family. And I, I think we could learn a lot from each other. 
Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 